You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because there's enough icky bigotry in the real world without making more in our fantasy worlds. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marsha Ryan Moreska, and this is episode 30, Fantasy Race and Avoiding Fantasy Races. Well, listeners, we are so excited to have you back today for what I think is one of the most exciting guest star episodes that we have ever had. The most exciting guest star episode we've ever had because we have not one, not two, but three fabulous guest stars here with us today to talk about um, what I think is going to be a very interesting, fascinating, and insightful um, topic with these folks. Um, So I think I've been calling them the dream team, um, but I would love um, if they could introduce themselves um, to to all of you. Um, Tempest, would you like to start us off? Sure. Hi, I'm Kate Tempest Bradford. I'm a science fiction and fantasy author uh, and a podcaster and like everyone else in the entire world. And also I teach classes for writingtheother.com, which I do alongside Nisi Shawl, who is one of the co-authors of the book Writing the Other, and also uh, a whole team of other very talented teachers. Awesome. Kay? Hi, I'm K.S. Villoso, fantasy author. Uh, the book I have out now is called The Wolf of Orin Yarrow, as well as The Ikisar Falcon. Awesome. Sarah? Hi, I'm Sarah Guan. I'm an editor of science fiction and fantasy, and I currently work at Erewhon Books, a new independent speculative fiction company we just launched. And I believe I have edited in previous jobs two of the three hosts of this podcast. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yep, yep. No, no nepotism at all here. At... <laughs> building for masochists yes and it's it's very exciting to talk to you again sarah this is fantastic likewise so i feel like this is going to be a pretty um heavy topic that we're going to dive into today um so before we get in there i kind of wanted to talk about with our guests um what do you all enjoy about fantasy world building like what gives you joy what big picture ideas or dorky little details do you just love about world building and fantasy are we doing this in order or <laughs> it's just jump in whenever you want. <laughs> we embrace the, the chaos first. Of it here, so embrace the chaos. <laughs> uh, for for me, the best thing about world building is that it's it's an added layer of story. So you have the character layer and then you have the plot layer. But you also have the world building layer and if you do it right, you could create a certain like like an an angle in the story that you are not necessarily touching with the main plot but it like it it drives home the themes and the like like your approach to character it just rounds it up it it it's yeah i just think of it as a separate layer of storytelling and you know you can add all sorts of history and details to it that when you look at it from a bigger picture it makes it it makes it make more sense definitely yeah i totally agree with that and i also really love 
the aspect of world building where I get to highlight all the stuff that I love about real world cultures in a world building setting. Um, for the most of the work that I am doing right now, my world building is based on a real culture, but I'm <laughs> fantasizing it, fantasizing it, whatever. Um, <laughs> and so I get to do this great thing where I'm looking at like, what are the aspects of the real culture that I'm playing with? How do I get to like put them in my world? And, and where can I highlight aspects of that culture that are 100% real? Um, that always makes me really exciting, but I think it's in part because I, I'm a history buff. And so I love being able to like bring out those cool things in history, those cool aspects of culture in whatever world I'm building. Some of my favorite things to work on when it comes to editing science fiction and fantasy are world building elements, simply because I think it's an opportunity to examine a lot of existing uh, conventions and biases and problems in the world in a whole new way while keeping it real while keeping the issues and you know the logistics of reworking these topics feeling grounded i love talking about for example economics in fantasy worlds or i see someone <laughs> shaking their head um you know or for example <laughs> Uh, science and technology and medicine in fantasy and science fiction worlds because you've got to keep it consistent, you've got to keep it realistic, you've got to make sure that, say, populations are represented accurately and, you know, um, the movement of people in, in time and space are represented accurately. But at the same time, you get to ask what if on a grander scale than just with your primary characters. Yeah, I love that element of scale. It's Sarah's fault that I know the names, approximate ages, and socioeconomic class of all 330 mages living in Avon, <laughs> even though you'll never meet most of them in the books, because she asked me a question, and I was like, well, I'm going to answer it <laughs> very thoroughly. <laughs> but I love, I love a spreadsheet. <laughs> I love, absolutely. I'm, I'm filling it in one at a time as I write the microfiction based on it. It spawned a whole thing. But... Yeah, that's, I think that's the kind of thing that most of us love. And, and Kay, I loved what you said, too, about sort of the the world fulfilling a role that the plot might not. I think it's sort of cliche to hear, like, the city was a character. But through world building, you really can give it that aspect. That's a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, like, you can have a city that has a certain flavor. Mm -hmm. And that can really heighten what what the plot is doing or what, what, what you're trying to do with the story. So um, what, one of the many things that um, really inspired us to say we should, we should do this episode um, is that we're having a lot more conversations um, in, in the book world about race. And more frequently than I would like to see, I've seen people assert, well, if you're writing a second world fantasy, you don't need to worry about that because it's not the real world. So you can just kind of do whatever you want. And as much as I love how in fantasy you can play and you can experiment and you can do different things, that, that seems to me to be a, a problematic attitude to bring to your world building, that this is something that you can just shelve and not think about because it's second world fantasy. Um, is that something that you all have seen or... Um, encountered in talking about this with with other people definitely 
<laughs> Definitely. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I just there was just a tweet not that long ago when I was I had this whole tweet storm that I put on the writing the other Twitter account about because people were talking about whether or not it was okay for white writers to write protagonists of color or you know whatever that dynamic is right and the default position from writing the other is yes it is possible but then people were like no and there was like a lot of screaming and I was like all right let me give you the more nuanced discussion of the default position I'm like you can do it but it takes a lot of research it takes a lot of work it's not something you should do right out of the gate right and so that that whole tweet thread was about that and then one of the responses to it was somebody was like well, okay, I mean, all of that's fine if you're writing literary fiction or mimetic fiction or contemporary fiction, whatever way they put it. But, like, that doesn't really apply if you're writing fantasy. And I'm like, ha, 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 it does apply. It applies even more to you, friend, because you don't think it applies. And I'm worried about you. <laughs> I'm real worried because you've said that. Um, but, yes, it's. I think, actually, it is even more important in speculative fiction in part because we do get to make up our own worlds we do get to create something that doesn't exist except for in our heads until we put it on the page and whenever things come out of our head and come out of the page all the cultural stuff that is in our head that we don't know about comes right along with it and you are just as in danger of hurting individuals or groups with your made-up secondary fantasy world as you are with your contemporary novel about a professor who is so venerable and wise and really did kind of Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my thought on that is, is like, I, I agree with Tempest. The biggest thing is that in, no matter what you write, real people are going to be reading it. And it's impossible, I say, I would say, to write something and have it completely free of your own biases. So depending on where you're coming from, when you write something, you're going to be carrying those biases. And when you engage with, with a secondary, like, like I- even in secondary world, in a secondary world in fantasy, and you're, you're, you're creating a new race, and somebody else sees themselves in that race it, it it's hard to like, like like basically you could end up traumatizing people who are reading this book because you carried all the biases you have even though you're saying you made it up but but it's hard to remove yourself it's it, it's against very similar to to a man writing a woman you could be carrying a lot of of like like uh male gaze with that that might like like and then when women read it they're like that's not how that's not how we think we don't rest boobily down the stairs <laughs> but like, like it, it, it's it's a great analogy because i think a lot of people don't quite understand how it is like like how how race plays a part in in everything we do is it's mostly because when you're from the default you just have not had to engage with that because everything around you reflects reflects that def- default whereas people from other cultures they have had to see a lot of these a lot of the bad depictions over time so that you you, you become very sensitive when you see it even when 
maybe the race doesn't exactly 100% reflect you. But like maybe an example for that is something like Lord of the Rings with the orcs. What 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 are you saying when you write orcs in? Is it like did, did you make this up or did you inadvertently use a real culture, like a real like a real race to kind of fit into your depictions of orcs and then are other people now thinking like w- w- when you're when you're reading this uh depiction of orcs does it seem like a real person to you <laughs> if that makes sense mm-hmm. i think writing in general um is and reading both are acts of empathy with other human beings first and foremost whether you're a writer hoping to connect with readers and tell them a story that moves them, or whether you're a reader hoping to be entertained and to be so moved by a story, you're trying to connect with other human beings. And if you're a reader who is trying to enjoy a book that depicts you or others as lesser than, in whatever ways, conscious or otherwise, that's actively impacting your understanding of the story that is being told and also the conversation that the author is having with you. That author is basically telling you that you or other people are, in their eyes, lesser than or, you know, less human in some ways than they are or their protagonist is, etc. So in many cases, I think that kind of unexamined bias coming from someone in the um, majority group or in the non-oppressed group is simply bad writing and a lack of empathy. And that's something that we should all be aware of and root out in our work and in, you know, in our work as some of you writers and also as editors and publishing professionals. I love what you both said in terms of considering a book is not just a thing that a writer writes, A book is a thing that a reader reads, and I think that it's a giant pitfall that we can, as writers, get sucked into, that we think of this book as something that I am creating, that I am, um, it's my little thing that I'm putting out, but it's like, no, it doesn't actually exist until someone reads it in many ways, and so having that understanding of that dynamic is so important, and I like that you really both speak to that. But that, that, all this was making me think of, uh, I had one beta reader in one of the things I wrote. So it's like, you know, this secondary world culture, that these are Ashkenazi Jews. I was like, that was not my intention. She's like, well, that might not have been your intention, but that's what you did. I was like, okay, that's that's good to know. And how can I improve that or fix that? And I think it is crucial to be aware that it's not only what you intend when you write, but how your readers are going to take that and put it through their own filters as in addition to whatever junked up filters we have in writing yeah absolutely i remember actually rowena a conversation that we had about your series very early on uh (laughs) where we were talking about your protagonist and her brother essentially being immigrants in uh fantasy revolutionary france right and how that impacts the way they interact with the majority culture in the country where they've landed even though uh they in contemporary parlance would be considered white because this is not the contemporary world 
and this is a this is a culture where these two people would have experienced to a certain extent a level of othering and we had a really great conversation about how to deal with that and how that would feed into not just their experience of the world but actually their understanding of politics and their interaction with or you know in some cases their avoidance of a revolution and what that revolution means for people who don't necessarily have the means and the leeway to rebel right and that was just i i remember having that conversation and it being i think quite extraordinary in both uh your sort of understanding and willingness to engage with that topic when I was essentially being like I have questions about the identity of your protagonist <laughs> and you know just the the fruitful sort of uh <laughs> like editorial content that came out of that right well and I think it's it was so important in that particular case and I think a lot of cases that these questions aren't just world building background cases they're like how people see themselves and therefore how they see themselves engaging with their world and therefore how they define their goals and their stakes and their motivation. And so even basic plotting, like you have to engage with some of these things or, or the whole story itself can fall apart, not just, not just, just background world, world building. So what are some good examples of books that have done the world building well and shown multiculturalism well? I know this is really late. It feels really lazy to say this at this point, but Nora Jemison's or N.K. Jemison's uh, the the trilogy that starts with the fifth season. It you know, and I say that it feels lazy because like that's that's a book that's literally on everybody's list all the time, right? People are like, yeah, just gotta read some N.K. Jemison. I'm like, oh, whatever. I've been reading N.K. Jemison since before you. Um, <laughs> uh, but but in that book. Um, and actually, in, in her first trilogy, the Inheritance trilogy, the one that started with 100,000 Kingdoms, also she does a really good job of just building out a world that clearly has lots of different cultures in it. And, you know, they're not all analog cultures, but she's very careful about when there are aspects of a culture that might be seen as being an analog to another culture. It's not, it, it isn't just like set dressing that comes out of nowhere. And so, yeah, I think that in, in both of those trilogies, uh, she does a really good job with that of, of showing a world that has like multiple different nuanced layers um, and also multiple different kinds of people. Um, and none of those kinds of people are just a one-to-one -one analog for anybody. I'm thinking of my answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's allowed. <laughs> for this question I interpreted the question to mean specifically uh, let's talk about white people who have done this well uh, who have written uh, you know by POC culture as well um, and clearly that was not the intention of the question but that's what I got so um, a few that come to mind are well I think Guy Gabriel Kay has done a really good mm -hmm. job of writing cultures that are not his own in a number of different books. But I'm specifically going to speak to uh, his takes on Chinese culture in Under Heaven and also uh, River of Stars. It 
that is clearly a case where you have a white author who has undertaken the laborious research of writing a culture that is not his own and writing a time period that he may not have begun knowing all that much about. But it is so clear that he's done the reading, done the homework in ways that are not just, you know, I hired a sensitivity reader. I'm not frankly even sure if he uses sensitivity readers, but like it was very clear that he's read a lot of the historical documents on which his book is based. I remember reading Under Heaven and then being like, there's a poem in here that I recognize because I was made to recite it as a child until it was drilled into my head. And I was like, and then I remember asking him like, so this poem, right? And he's just like, well spotted. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think, I think the comment was even, um, well, it's not under copyright because it's centuries old. Um, you know, like that level of research. And so I think if you want to write another culture, you need to put in those years of homework and you need to talk to people who are not just of that culture, but who are scholars of that culture, preferably people of that culture who are scholars of that culture. But I'm sure a combination of people can cover that that uh, base for you where you're writing as though you're researching a topic of, you know, any other kind of topic where you know nothing about it. If you're one of those science fiction writers who's writing about spaceships and you're researching obsessively, like, you know, uh, dimensions and temperatures and, you know, minutia about spaceships, you better apply that same level of attention to detail to your writing about culture is not your own. You better expect to be called out on cultural inaccuracies the same way you get you would get called out for, oh, this thing that you wrote about would probably explode and kill all your protagonists. So maybe don't, or you know, check your work with a real scientist, right? Like that level of criticism. And if you are prepared to take that level of criticism from scientists, you should be willing to take that level of criticism from people of the culture you're writing about if you're not from that culture. My answer would have been Sarah, so... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry! That's fine. You, you're, we're allowed to just say ditto on this. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I feel like it's one of those things where uh, I, I feel a little uncomfortable saying this, but it is true that I rarely read fantasy or science fiction that does this aspect of world building that we're talking about well that's written by white people and it could also be that i've just not read the good stuff i've not read guy gabriel okay so now i'm like wait a minute now i gotta go out and see if i can find this right but yes most of the time when i see it done well it's usually done well by somebody uh where the author is of some marginalization and usually connected to in some way a culture that the culture that they're writing about may be based on so yeah it, maybe that's an uncomfortable truth hey that's the real truth <laughs> that's yeah. part of what that's we're, part of what we're here for yeah, yeah absolutely and it's i think um, that all three of you have said in one way or another over the course of this this is something that the average white person or person in a privileged part of culture just doesn't think about as much so there's there's a lack of depth i think in terms of how much 
many of us think about this without realizing there's a lack of depth. So I think that there's probably a reflection of that in many books just because it's not there as an awareness. Um, what do you think are some like, if there was a 101 of things that people should just be, concepts people should be aware of um, in order to write race and world building well, like what might some of them be? I guess I'm kind of thinking of how a culture defines race, um, what's a concept of other, like what are things like that that people should should take it upon themselves to read about and educate themselves and think about and chew on? Hmm. That one's hard because there's so many things. Um, <laughs> I mean, because I... You teach a whole set of classes about this. I, I teach a whole class about this. Um, yeah, because, I mean, I think like the biggest thing is that I try to drill into my students is that they need to understand how culture works before they can go out there and build a culture. And I feel like a lot of times there are writers who do not understand how culture works, who do not understand the arc of history. And so they write things and you're like, you don't, you don't even get like how this works. And this is true for both fantasy world building and science fiction world building. Cause the number of people who are like, well, you know, I didn't make any races in my far future setting because by then we'll all be one race because we will have intermingled to the point and I'm like what are you smoking I need I need some before I speak to you I'm gonna need it um and and yeah it's and and it's interesting because I have had that a version of that conversation with so many students like so many writers but also like some of my students and I say to them, but think about the number of cultures that exist right now that they can trace their cultural history back thousands of years. And there are things that they do that are done because people were doing it 5,000 years ago or whatever. And I remember one of my students where I, I gave that example and they were like, oh, you're right, because I'm Jewish. And, and I was just thinking like, why did I have to be the one to say this to you? But I think it's it, in part because, because it's like, it's background noise for her. I mean, not background noise, but like, it's just, it, it's like, you know, air, you know, or like water for a fish when you're inside of a culture that has all these things that, that you do because we've been doing it for this many thousands of years. And it's based on all this cultural history and whatever. You don't necessarily think about it as being a thing that we've been doing for 5,000 years and therefore 5,000 years from now we may still be doing it because it's just like it's just so much a part of you um but because I've had to be the one to, to be like how did do people like how does this work I'm like why don't you look at history the arc of history uh and then they get it um but I think there's also the problem of you have a lot of people who are very divorced from their ancestral cultures and so because of that, they can't see it because they're just like, well, what, we've only been doing things the way we've been doing them for like a couple hundred years, right? It's like, ha <laughs> Americans. Yeah, like, uh, I think one thing that if you're trying to write cultures into your world, you have to be very aware of your own biases and that, like, you have to practice decentering yourself when you're writing this kind of comes up because when like when I'm when I'm doing the edits for my own work, it's kind of interesting some of the notes that come up where they're like, why would 
like why would this happen like why would this character make this decision and it was a learning experience for me because to me that decision makes 100% sense it's like like if if i showed it to my husband i'm like who is also filipino and i ask him does this make sense to you and he's like yeah it makes sense because say uh the character doesn't want to dishonor her father it doesn't want to dishonor her clan but when it's being read by someone else, they're carrying their own biases, and it doesn't make sense to them. So, it's maybe something that if you switch it the other way around, it's gonna be the exact same thing. And what, like, like if you're writing another culture, but you're using your own, like, how you would react from your culture, and then you think that this is authentic, it's not... <laughs> It's not going to make sense to someone from that culture reading it. They're like, why is this happening? It mm. it doesn't match their experiences. And then that's I I think a lot of disconnect comes from not understanding that like the world doesn't always reflect your experiences. But this is hard for certain people to understand because a lot of the media that they see reflects their experiences, and they think everyone is like this. They think everything is say is that simple, or that. I, I another example was from from early readers of my work. They were wondering why someone who's in a strange country would have a hard time finding help from the locals, and this made no sense to me because I'm like. If I got lost in another country and I couldn't like like I was speaking their language but I was speaking it weirdly I would not get help people would start to take advantage of me and then I started thinking the people who were reacting in a certain way who thinks that that's unrealistic that you could go to a strange country and not be able to ask for help they're coming from a position of privilege where you could always ask for help so, yeah, that, that's one thing. You have to learn to decenter yourself. You have to learn to be open to other experiences. And I think that, very importantly, you have to talk to people from that culture a lot to the point that you understand how they think and what matters to them. Oh, excellent points. I think to piggyback off of some of the stuff that has been said, when I approach it ed editorially, I tend to think of it as a spectrum that runs from character development to world building uh, when you're talking about cultures that are not the mainstream culture the the mainstream english language culture where character development is about developing the a, a consistent person when you don't understand or aren't from the culture that that person is from so that requires a lot of research, whether it's sensitivity readers, whether it's just being immersed in that culture yourself, whether that's having enough friends and acquaintances who will be real with you um, about what that experience is like, such that you can construct your character in a living, breathing, three-dimensional way, right? Um, and then the other end of that spectrum, world building, is if you are creating a world that is unlike the world you're from, if you're creating cultures or, you know, uh, political entities, civilizations that do not resemble the one that you're from, then you have to do the research 
regarding the history of the places you're basing this culture on. And that can involve a lot of reading, although, you know, one has to be selective about that if you're only reading, you know, uh, dead white historians about that place, you're not going to get the best <laughs> representation of that place. Um, you know, it can require a lot of reading. It can require a lot of talking to experts, um, cultural experts, historical experts, etc. And, you know, it can require sometimes taking the time away from the book that you want to write in order to put in the work to make it a book that you are capable of writing because chances are you're not always ready to write the book that you want to write and that can be an issue of craft that can be an issue of experience and in many cases that can be an issue of not having done the work in terms of representing the culture that you want to write about i think a lot of what y'all are saying is pertinent to what is probably this podcast's unofficial catchphrase which is choose don't presume mm. And we apply that to all kinds of things. Like, don't just assume that your fantasy world has to reflect the world you've lived in. But especially when we're thinking about race and culture, it also means don't assume everyone's experience is as you, author, have experienced the world. Mm -hmm. Figure out what, ex you know, how, how people interact with their environment and their culture and their history that are not the ways you have. And there are so many different ways to experience your culture and your history and and who you are and who your family is and what your neighborhoods look like thinking about that not just in in an imaginary fantasy sense but realizing in the real world this is a real thing too and i do think that's a step that kay like you said decentering yourself i think is really crucial for a, a skill for a writer to learn especially if you have grown up not being forced by media to do so mm -hmm. in the way that most white writers have not been forced by media and other influences to take that step outside themselves, at least until later on in life, usually. So it's a thing to be aware of and, and actually work on. And I mean that word very literally. It is work. And it does not, it's not like, well, I read one book and I'm finished now. I've <laughs> learned all about racism. No, it's, it's always going to be ongoing. It is always something you have to keep working at and pulling apart and engaging with. Um, not least because our conversations about it all keep developing as well as, you know, things have shown us recently. Jumping off that, it's also really important, and um, this was brought up before, uh, to think, of, to look very carefully at what you're reading and who wrote it and when and uh, and why. Because <laughs> some people write things for, for wrong reasons, but also just in general, and I come across this a lot because... The research that I do uh, is mostly ancient history, ancient historical research. And so you come across a lot of stuff that uh, was written by people who weren't paying attention to whether or not their cultural biases were getting in the way of what they were looking at and how they interpret things. Um, and, and there are systems that uphold that even down into these times where people have started to realize perhaps that's not the best way to go about your uh, archaeological and anthropological research. Um, so just being very aware of like what, where the person is coming from who wrote that book or the people who wrote that book or the experts that you're talking to. Um, I don't want to necessarily say that stuff that's more recent is better because that's not actually 
the 100% best yardstick, but stuff that's more recent is more likely to include a consciousness that perhaps, you know, things need to be looked at in a way that comes from like centering the culture itself instead of centering the view on the culture. Tempest, one thing that you said that I'm going to pop back to really quickly, um, that, that dear student who said, you know, in 3000 years, we're all going to be one race and, and hunky dory. (laughs) It, it kind of reminded me that, um, people probably need to have an awareness of how a culture even defines race that we assume that everyone understands race the way that we Americans do. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're going to define it in the same kind of ways. And that's not necessarily how other, other cultures or how a fantasy culture would go about understanding and defining race to begin with. Um, so, I mean, there are certainly pitfalls there. Um, but are there ways that writers should think about how the cultures that they are writing about are understanding what even is race? What is race and how do I engage with it? Mm-hmm. I, again, I say look to history because there have been lots of different ways that people have defined what we have come to call race um, at different times. Um, and we even know what some ancient cultures thought about other people who weren't them and whatnot. And a lot of it just seems to come down to uh, we're us and we're cool. And those people over there are weird. Um, (laughs) I don't know about them. They're not us. So mm, think about that. But but even beyond say our sort of Western civilization infused view of what race is and how race is tied to skin color and whatnot, that hasn't even necessarily been true for the whole time that like Western civilization has existed. Like the day that I found out that there were actual leaflets that were put out by British people who were like, the Irish are a whole other race and they're also the worst and most terrible. And they may be descended from orcs or whatever it was. And I was like, aren't all these people white? What is happening right now? But it's like, whiteness is a construct you know and and when we say things like you know race is a construct we're not saying like there is no race everybody's part of the human race like no we're not going there but like we're talking but then you have to think about what are the constructs then that you are going to have the people in your cultures decide right like how you know whatever way they're going to define like what those people over there are versus what we are or what these people who are next to us are versus the people who are from way way over there you just have to think about it because in you know whether or not they're actually humans you're a human and your book is going to be read by humans and humans do this thing right they categorize um and sometimes that categorization leads to bad things like oppression and violence and sometimes it doesn't um so looking at when the categorization in in history for example doesn't take that route like when are the times when everybody's been like it's fine we're all fine it's cool um, except for those one people over there, but that's because they have all the good stuff and we're going to go take it from them. Yeah, I I would also add to that that when you're writing for a contemporary audience about race or, you know, about race is not your own or just about the interactions between people of different races in your fictional made-up world, supposedly, you know, even though it's obviously going to be based in part on the real world, you have to do it from both a contemporary and a historical perspective, which is, I think, quite difficult 
which is what all this homework and reading is about. Um, because on the one hand, if you're basing your fantasy culture on a like a period in history where people interacted in certain ways and had certain understandings of race, you need to really understand what those people thought race was, whether they had an understanding of race. Chances are it's not the same as what it is today, uh, you know, in general or in, say, the uh, Anglo-American world. But at the same time, you have to be really aware that you're also writing for contemporary readers who will have their own contemporary biases going into this fictional world. And if you're writing from the perspective of, you know, a thousand years ago, you're probably also going to be doing a bit of a disservice to contemporary readers who might have certain experiences of race and racism that did not exist back then, but that you cannot avoid when writing about people of different cultures and colors. So I remember, for instance, um, Cass, when we were talking about the Roman world and how slavery existed in the Roman world, albeit in a very different form from, you know, American chattel slavery, right? Mm -hmm. We had to thread the needle between writing a realistic and sort of historically responsible depiction of slavery in alt Rome, while simultaneously being sensitive to and responsible about how slavery as a concept, as a term, has changed so much given, you know, the Anglo-American sort of history thereof, that you can't really use the word slave or slavery without also taking all of that into account and being sort of empathetic to the readers who would be affected by your use of that that concept, right? Yeah, that's exactly the sort of thing we worked on. And, and it is it is being aware of how certain words can have a resonance they might not have had historically, that you might not intend currently, but knowing that that resonance might be there for some readers. And like you said, threading that needle. And it is, that one's, that's a particularly hard one to navigate. And I don't know that I always get it right. And I think that's part of this conversation too, is having to be okay with the fact that you're gonna screw up. Like at some point you're gonna get something wrong and you get called out on it. You gotta own it. And you gotta listen to the people whom you may have completely unintentionally done harm to. And that's, I, I remember that being part of the conversation on Twitter, what was it, a week ago or so, when, when this sort of, the, the latest round of the, um, can write, white people write people who are not white, <laughs> um, was going around, was, I, I think, I think Tempest and Kay, I, I saw both of you say something to the effect of, you can, but Should you? there might be consequences, and you, get a, you gotta be aware of that and ready for that, too. You have to embrace. I screwed up. I did it bad. I'm sorry. And and then shut up and then take what's coming to you. But they don't wanna. <laughs> as as I was prepping for this this call, I actually thought about that and why there is such resistance to that. Because, you know, if someone calls you out on your hyperspace technology not being exactly right, I feel like people don't take that as personally as they do being called out on having gotten something about race incorrect. And I think it's, I don't know, there's, I have not unpacked it all in my head yet, but I think there's something about, you know, the white fragility and the assumption that if you got it wrong, you're automatically bad, evil, and irredeemable. And it's like, that's not, 
It's not the thing. But you're being asked to examine a part of yourself that you're not often required to, like I said before. And that's, it's uncom it is uncomfortable, like we said earlier. And if you're not ready for that discomfort, maybe you shouldn't be trying this yet. <laughs> I think it's the hard part where people think that racism automatically is, is bad. So they're like, I'm not a bad person, so I can't mm -hmm. be a racist. I could not have made those racist mistakes. Instead of thinking that racism is like it, it's a byproduct of the world of like like the the systems in place in the world, mm -hmm. and it, I guess it, it's it's harder for some people when when they think that the world is a is looks like a certain place like looks like a certain thing in their heads and they're like okay all the races are bad so you know I'm writing this this world with a secondary fantasy where racism is wrong. And all the all the people of color are good people, and it's but you're still reflecting the racism there because you you just flipped it. You're not seeing uh, like you're not seeing other people as people. You're not allowing them to have the range of experiences and the range of like personalities. You're not allowing them to make mistakes. You're not accepting that like maybe someone of color could also be racist. It's it's a lot of things, but like th that criticism, they automatically take it to mean I'm bad, but I'm not bad. So <laughs> I think that's how you get the defensive reactions. Yeah. Well, Kay, earlier you were using, um, you a few times said to be aware of biases. And I think that that is such an important word to remember with this because, you know, people being criticized or being asked to think critically want to rush immediately to, oh, but I'm not a bigot. I'm not like an overt, out there bigot. But everyone is biased. Like everyone has biases. And being asked to examine those is not being told you're a bad person. It's being, you know, told, hey, everyone has biases. Unpack it. Yeah. I think that one of the hardest things uh, for a lot of our students to deal with is coming upon all of the cultural nonsense that they've been fed uh and realizing that they have internalized it because the students who take our classes have not been forced to take our classes right like this isn't you know some required thing at a college that they're just like oh why do we have to be here right they're all people who are like yeah i want to do this i want to do this well i want to be sure that i'm like you know culturally sensitive and and able to write you know these characters in a way that won't hurt other people um but inevitably in the course of the class they are like, oh, I thought I understood, but I don't, and oh no, and now like there's still this stuff in my head, and I I keep feeling like we should better prepare them for this this hero's journey that they go through because then they <laughs> enter like the dark night of the soul and they're very sad, um, but but it's it's a it is a head trip to discover that you just have a lot of stuff in your head that you didn't put there, you didn't consciously imbibe, you didn't realize that it was a problem. You didn't realize that it was racist or classes or sexist or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, like you, you freak out cause you're like, no, I, but I'm not that person. And it, well, there is some personal responsibility in all of this. The thing to also understand is that we all just have cultural stuff that's been put in our heads by somebody who's not us. And it's not 100% your fault that it's there, but it is 100% your responsibility to dig it out and to recognize it when it comes along. And when somebody says to you, no, 
that's that's not okay and for you to instead of being like but yeah it is like no (laughs) but no sorry um it's been a lot of time telling people no sorry that's not okay (laughs) and then being very angry with me about it so another one of the potential pitfalls is what if what you're trying to show in your world building is bigotry and systemic racism what's I mean, a lot of times when people try to write that, they then will at least take the accusation that in writing that they're showing their approval of it, which I know is not usually what the actual complaint is when when talking about works that do that. But what's what are some of the pitfalls in trying to show this in a way that is a respectful way to show it, which I know is a weird oxymoron. (laughs) So how do you write in racism without perpetuating racism? Yes. That's a better way to ask the question. Well, I think there's very clearly the bucket of people, of, of authors, who want to show that racism is bad. And I want to write about how racism is bad. And I'm going to make the sort of oppressed group look good in my writing. And there's an element of saviorism that it is kind of itself also racist. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people who have that first impulse to write about racism, if they are not of the oppressed race in this case, really should examine that first. Am I trying to white savior my way into a story that is really not mine to tell, right? Mm -hmm. There are a few prominent examples that have come up in the recent publishing discourse of this. And, you know, no, no, no need to name any particular names, but I think beyond asking yourself, am I trying to be the white savior here? which I think most people will reflexively deny in the manner of white fragility that we just talked about, but it's, you know, examining why am I trying to tell this story? What am I adding to the conversation about race and racism or just about the world in general with this story? And if you can't answer that with more than a, you know, sort of simple good guys, bad guys narrative, about your understanding of race and racism, then maybe don't write the story or maybe do some more research. Yeah, uh, I agree with Sarah there that it, if this is a topic you want to write, the first thing you want to ask you is why. Why do you want to write it? And because if you're already worried about depicting it as like like talking about racism and being racist in the work, then you may not be in that position to write that material if that makes sense because maybe that's the wrong question to ask Mm. (laughs) because say you've had experience in marginalization yourself I think you would know exactly what you're trying to depict in this material and like when you're speaking true to your experience there then it then then it's not it, the chances of it being racist are less. But if 
if your primary concern is how do I be less racist here, as, as Sarah said, maybe you are trying to write a white savior story, which may not be <laughs> ideal in today's world right now. Yeah, I mean, there are many examples of times when when people have tried to do this that it hasn't worked out well. And sometimes it's not even that they ended up creating like some racist nonsense when they were like, I'm going to write about, you know, how racism is bad. It's like, oh, oh, no. Um, Because, <laughs> you know, one route that a lot of speculative fiction takes is allegory, right? Like, oh, but it's the elves stand in for these people. And, you know, the, the Sutherlings stand in for those people or whatever. And I feel like allegory used to be a more effective way of talking about race and racism uh, by people who are from, you know, what we call the dominant paradigm, what is considered the default in your culture. Uh, because you're able to like get around people's barriers. They're like, I'm not reading about the struggle that African-Americans have gone through uh, in civil rights. I'm reading a story about some elves. Right. And so you get that the allegory and sometimes the allegory can actually, it works. Like people will, will cite it as something like, Oh yes. But then sometimes the allegory is too ham handed. And then everybody's crying like that episode of Star Trek, the original series. Everybody, everybody knows immediately what I'm talking about. The people with like the the black is on the left side of the face. Now the black is on the right side of the face. And how can you be fighting? You're all the same. You're just like, okay, Star Trek. Thank you, thank you for that um, allegory. But but at the same time, like at that time, that was probably actually one of the better ways to get across their point because Star Trek was explicitly created because Gene Roddenberry wanted to talk about stuff that. The, net, the network censors would not have let him talk about if he had been like, okay, I'm going to write about, you know, I'm TV about the Vietnam War. No, you're not. No, you're not. Um, but Star Trek definitely is informed by Gene Roddenberry's feelings about the Vietnam War and other social things, right? So at that time, that was the way that he'd get it across. But the great thing about culture is that it evolves. And now we are at a point where allegory is no longer as useful as a tool because we have already had so much allegory that is still in our cultural consciousness. Like I said, I talked about the Star Trek episode. Plenty of people who are listening to this podcast know about that Star Trek episode, right? Like it's not that old. It's not like fallen out of the cultural consciousness. So like, but we don't need allegory the same way we need it anymore. Or we need like way more sophisticated allegory than that. Um, and so that is always what, like what I want to try to get across to people is that, you know, if, if you're going to do this, First of all, like maybe put aside the allegory for a bit, um, but also like really consider, yeah, what do you want? What What is it that you exactly want to accomplish with this? Um, do you need to write about this in order to write about the thing that you are wanting people to understand that you're against, uh, whether it's racism or any other kind of bigotry? Uh, do, you, do you need this framework for that? But if people do want to use... Uh, a speculative fiction framework for that kind of thing one of the big uh, pieces of advice that I give is to dig really deeply into craft in order to find a solution to this problem um, I don't know uh, if this book has been mentioned on this podcast before but it probably has Ursula K. Le Guin's Stirring the Craft it's a great book just in general but in the section on point of view 
one of the things she does that I think is really brilliant is she breaks down um, the third person point of view and she's like, now look, people will tell you there's two third persons. There's third person limited, third person omniscient. And she's like, I don't like that term third person omniscient because whenever people say it, they say it with a sneer and they're like, oh, it's old fashioned and it's stupid and nobody does that anymore. And she's like, no. And so she goes into like um, the, the different kinds of third persons that are outside of limited. And one of them is like, you know, author involved narration where the author's voice is very clearly that narrative voice that the author isn't just sort of like reporting things from a distance. The author is involved. It has opinions. And if you use that point of view, <laughs> then that can be a way that you can have a, a work that is exploring why racism is bad or why other bigotries are bad without somebody being like, Oh, you're just like, you know, you, you think it's good. No, because guess what? The involved author has already told you that it's not. Um, the involved author has let you know, um, whether through direct telling or just like the way that the author tells the story, the way that they describe the actions of one group versus another, who the author clearly has sympathy with and who the author doesn't have time for. Um, so yeah, like if that's something that you want to do, uh, I feel like digging into that is a good way to, to think about going about doing it. I feel like that bounces really well into one of our, our other questions that we wanted to think about, which is the since we are talking about fantasy and science fiction, what happens when you add magic and shake? What are the implications that happen when you endow a certain group within your world with magical abilities or everyone except one group has magical abilities and adding that layer on top of what we've usually got going in fiction in general, what are the things to think about there? What are the things that we take into consideration when we're operating on that level? I guess my first, uh, question I would say to ask yourself is do you really want to go this route because it could get you in some trouble like I think about poor George R.R. <laughs> R. Martin back in the day when he was like yeah the Targaryens had purple eyes and white hair and they all have it and that's how you could tell they're a Targaryen it's fine and that just goes on down the line it's like what about if they marry other people no no it's like well but but what if okay they don't they don't marry other people and so but what about the Lannisters well all Lannisters are blonde okay but what if they marry other people? Then their children are blonde. That's how you know they're Lannisters. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Did George consult some genetics before he? But you know, no, he didn't, and that's okay. Um, so yeah, you just you don't want to, you don't want to get get tied into that kind of thing. Like you think it's a real simple fancy concept until some people come along and start poking holes in your seven book series, um, and then you're like, oh no, I've made a mistake. Um, and it, because it's it's very much a trope. To be like, oh, well, you know, these people over here can do this because they're these people. And, and it assumes that there can be such a thing as like purity of whatever. And, you know, even in our world, there like that purity does not exist in the way that people sometimes conceptualize that it does. Um, no matter how long your family has been in that one place, they... You, they do that DNA test and they found out, oh, well, great grandma was actually from China. And you're like, how did we not know? It's like, because you all think that just because everybody's <laughs> been in one place since forever that they never met anybody else. That's, that's how you didn't know. Um, and, and so, you know, taking that into account, it's just, it's actually not very believable that any kind of magic is going to be associated with race. And just like I feel it is not that believable when a certain kind of magic is associated with gender or sex 
Um, because then you, yeah, get into all those thorny things. What happens when the person is intersex? If this is, if this is tied to biological sex, which is still a construct, um, you know, what happens when the person is intersex? What happens, you know, in these other situations? And if it's tied to gender, well, what happens if the person who's assigned that gender is actually another gender? Does that mean that they're doing like fire magic because only people from the other gender do the fire magic and that's how they knew? Like those things hardly ever get thought through, but you got to think those things through, right? You really have to think it through. Now, I feel like the the thing that makes more sense is when you you tie it to culture in such a way as that we only teach the people from our culture this kind of magic. Like we we won't teach outsiders this magic. And that doesn't mean that a person can't become an insider and learn the magic, but then of course you have to watch out for the white savior trope, the whole Dune thing where it's like Paul Atreides showed up on that planet five minutes later, he was a better native from that planet than those people. <clears throat> so many feelings um but but you know <laughs> right <laughs> like ah avatar um so you but you can make it so that like the magic that is passed down and taught is restricted for whatever reason um because that is something that that we have in our world today like there are spiritual traditions that are just not for people who are not from that group um, and there are cultural traditions that are not for people who are from, from outside of that culture or who, or people who have done the work of really actually becoming a part of that culture. Then it's like, yes, now you're one of us. You've done this work and you have been doing it for years. Now you have access to these things that are just for us. Uh, so I, I don't know. It's like, I hate to be very proscriptive, but every time I see like, oh, it's all the people from this one area have this one kind of magic they can do and it's because of the race and I'm like no sorry like even even Avatar like sorry Avatar the last airbender I love you but but I feel like then like I haven't actually watched Korra but what I've read of Korra on the wikis because I'm a real big wiki reader I don't like to watch things I'll just read the wiki but but it looked like in Korra that's one of the things that they began to address this whole idea that like oh only the air nomads can do you know, airbending, and only people from the fire nation can do firebending. But what happens when an air nomad marries a waterbender? Never, all their kids come out all different, right? So I feel like they they did a, a little bit of correcting there. But yeah, the initial premise, while very comfortable, not always so realistic. You know, one thing that we've dropped back in on on this podcast a few times is that also magic frequently means power in one way or another. And so if you're going to tie it to particular groups, like I don't have an answer for you, but you gotta be aware of that, that power dynamics are gonna follow that. And what ways you're tying that to race can be um, more impactful than you might intend. You should probably also be aware of like how, how you're playing with prejudice when you're dealing with magic and like how maybe that's coded and because the, the 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 laziest thing is to say, oh, the magic users are just like us, and you know this prejudice that we had against them wasn't real after all. It's it's like it's the same thing as saying, oh, racism is bad. Yeah, we know, <laughs> but if you don't understand all the nuances of how that works, even if you're using just magic as a place in for prejudice, it it's still like the rules still kind of apply. It's still there's still a lot of stuff there that you have to examine and that you have to like really think about before you write about them. Because the worst thing is that you're making it sound like uh, prejudice is something that be- can be cured. 
in one day just because people are now more aware. But we all know that that's not true. It's the systems in place that is creating a lot of that. And it, I, th- I feel like it's the same when you're doing with when you're dealing with magic. Yeah, I love what Tempest said earlier about magic as more of a cultural tradition rather than as a genetic trait. Um, I think for a number of reasons, in the genre of fantasy, historically, magic and magic users have always had a whiff of eugenics about them. Mm-hmm that I've been very uncomfortable with from, you know, ever since I started reading fantasy. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it until sort of I became like a sentient adult being and figured out what that was all about, right? Like, there are ways that magic are, like, typically written in our genre where it's passed down through families, passed down through bloodline, passed down in a way that clearly separates magic users from non-magic users, and there's usually some form of prejudice or some form of uh, class hierarchy involved in the, the relationship between these two groups and the people who fall in between. And a lot of these are, I think, tropes that uh, beginning writers or you know writers from previous generations didn't really examine very deeply because these biases are so ingrained in our prevalent culture that they sort of just took for granted that the power dynamics would be the way they were, that certain prejudices would always exist in you know very specific fixed ways, and that eugenics was maybe not so bad after all, right? And I think I, well, I'm I'm very glad that in today's discourse in fantasy and science fiction, we're finally starting to unpack the ways in which magic and its portrayal has been faintly eugenic in all sorts of problematic ways for so long. And part of that is because we are obsessed with this idea that magic is somehow passed down through the bloodline and like blood purity and like the last heir of whatever, whatever, because they have the right magic. And it's just like, have y'all ever heard of a democracy? Right. But you know, Nope, nope. On <laughs> the world of Harry Potter, they have it. Um, but <laughs> I spend, yeah, there's probably an inordinate amount of dunking on J.K. Rowling uh, involved in all of our discussions about world building because, yeah, she's such a great example of what not to do. The jumping off of uh, what Kay was talking about <laughs> in terms of, you know, power dynamics and stuff, and also uh, it got me thinking about another trope that you pro- probably see more in science fiction where it's that, oh, um, there's going to be something that comes along from the outside that uh, makes all the humans stop fighting with each other. You know, they're, they're no longer going to be human on human prejudice because all oh, the aliens are here or, oh, this or oh, that. And and that's, of course, not, not how that works. Uh, and it's not how any of it ever works. But one of the things I always think about when I think about those kinds of tropes is Octavia Butler, because she wrote a story called Childfinder. And uh, it was a mysterious story that people had only ever heard of but never seen for something like 30 years because she wrote it while she was at Clarion. Uh, Harlan Ellison was one of her Clarion instructors. Harlan loved the story, bought it for his anthology, The Last Dangerous Visions, which somehow never, ever, ever came out. Um, But after Octavia Butler died, uh, the people who were going through her papers um, for the archive at, at Huntington found 
a copy of Childfinder. And I guess in part because Octavia had passed away and like, I don't know, there was other stuff that was going on behind the scenes, but that story was actually able to be published. Um, and it was published in a very tiny collection called Unexpected Stories. And it was paired with another story of hers that was actually one that she had never published that she had like abandoned um, early on. Uh, but Childfinder starts with the premise and it sort of opens with a like a sort of history lesson encyclopedia entry about how at some point uh humans uh, like develop the ability to, to be telepathic or something along those lines or some humans developed this and so this telepathy came along and um it said something about it and it's like and now it's it's equalized everybody nobody could be mad at each other because everybody has this power of telekinesis or tele whatever um and <laughs> And so it like starts out that way. And I was like, what, really? And then the story, spoiler alert, sorry, um, basically shows you how that's a nonsense notion. But like, that's a very like science fiction trope. Like that was well-established when Octavia Butler wrote this, like I think in the set, the sixties, it was already a well-established trope that like, you know, oh, this thing will equalize us all. And she's like, yeah, no, it won't. And she showed it with like, with characters who were African-American, who were like this, you know, it's called child finder because she's a woman who is supposed to, find the children who have this ability and like bring them into this government um you know program that essentially was going to control them but whenever she found black children she had, that had that ability she actually secreted them away somewhere else because she knew that they would not be treated the same and and so it was a very powerful statement that she was making about how yeah like no that trope it's not going to work like there's always going to be power dynamics and you always have to address that. You can't just be like, Oh, well, everybody has magic. And so therefore, Oh, well, everybody has telekinesis and therefore no, like even if everybody has it, there's still going to be power dynamics to address. Well, we are um, coming well over our hour. Um, and even though I could talk to you all, all night, honestly, um, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so I kind of want to end um, maybe on sort of a fun note since we are all on lockdown right now and for the foreseeable future, who knows how long, um, if you could go on vacation in any fantasy or sci-fi world, where would you, where would you go right now? <laughs> you know, I, I answered this recently in another interview and I, I, I just want to go to a mountain. <laughs> so probably Lord <laughs> of the Rings. Okay. Cause I, that's, that's one of my hobbies is just uh, backpacking up in the mountains. And like, we have not, had any of that because for the longest time we had this uh, kind of travel like they, they they were discouraging us from going out of town so i just want to go up a mountain <laughs> fair totally fair hopefully without careful what jewelry yeah. you take with you <laughs> i was just thinking sa shocker Bordy just put a thing on her twitter about for fantasy writers, like if you ended up in your own fantasy world, what would you do? And everyone's like, I would hide from all the terrible shit. That I it's not okay. Yeah, it's like I want to go back there. Um, I mean, since I've been watching a lot of Avatar: The Last Airbender recently, uh, I was actually thinking about that's that's actually one fantasy world that I wouldn't mind living in because most of them are just like, why would you want to go there? It's so horrible. Like, there's nothing but death and sadness. Like. Every time somebody puts Westeros on one of those lists of like, which one of these? I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, no one wants to go to Westeros, but like, Westeros would be worst? the worst place. I to know, live. maybe maybe like one of those those other 
places in that world, like like those islands really right. far away, and like maybe those Everybody. are nice. It's like, but then they probably don't have flushing toilets, so I, just, I can't deal with it. <laughs> but uh, I, I think the world of Avatar The Last Airbender probably at this point is, is my jam, just because it does actually seem like it's pretty cool, as long as you stay away from wherever the Fire Nation is going to be. I guess it's fine. <laughs> you just need an early warning system or something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I would say, let's see, I would probably go to uh, K-Con in uh, Fonda Lee's The Greenbone Saga, provided that at that moment the clans are at a truce and I'm a nobody not belonging to either clan. Like... <laughs> Because not fall food... into crime. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> the food will be amazing. Yes. Um, and, you know, the weather there is also pretty nice. It's just that, you know, there are random sudden bouts of gang violence all the time. <laughs> and I'm just like, hopefully I don't get caught up in magic gang warfare. <laughs> it might be worth it for the food, though. I remember we had Fonda on and she was describing, like, her process of creating... The cuisine and I, and I was like yes I want to go to there <laughs> it sounds amazing what about you all oh moderators oh I'm gonna throw it back yeah. at us can I pick from sci-fi as well as yeah, fantasy sure. you can pick whatever you want there are no rules here <laughs> then I'm taking the Star Trek vacation to Risa I mean happy sex planet nice weather all the time that just I don't I don't see where that goes wrong so I'm going to try not to get, you know, mixed up in any crazy archaeological hijinks like Picard did when he was there. But I think for most people, that's probably a very chill vacation. It's a good choice. I, I, I applaud that choice. <laughs> I don't have a better answer than that. Please. No, I don't either. You know, it's just because it's on my mind. Um, but I'm, Marshall, I just started reading the draft that you sent me. Um, so I'm going to go to the city that you describe in the opening pages just because there's tacos. <laughs> <laughs> tacos are very good. Like, I mean, I, I'm, tacos are I'm admittedly, important. and I apologize, not that far into it yet. So horrible things may happen, but I don't know about them. Oh, I just know that there are tacos. <laughs> But the tacos are amazing. <laughs> Quite literally, to die for. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> no. Are we letting you off the hook? Are you just going to go to the sex planet? Too? <laughs> That's what I said. Oh, I said okay. I don't have All a better right. answer right. than that. Yeah. I would go. To, I would go to Riser because you know, well-controlled temperatures and it's just chill and there's beaches and there's replicators making great food. So again, there you go. How can you go wrong? As long as you don't go that one time when, like, the weird conservative terrorist organization tries to shut everything down. No, when... It's fine. Space Puritans took over. That's, that's no good. No one wants no that. One wants yeah. that. <laughs> Nobody wants a Space Puritans. And on that note... <laughs> the Republicans were actually Space Puritans, though. <laughs> it would be. I mean, they would be. Is that, is that a subset of like, Space Force? Should we be watching out for this? And on that note, um, to <laughs> our lovely guests, Tempest, Sarah, Kay, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolutely fantastic time. And honestly, if you ever want to come back and talk about anything else that is near and dear to your world building heart, we would love to have you. So thank you so much for spending time with us this evening. Thanks for having us. Having having us. us. This was a great time.
Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you interrogate your writing choices. If you'd like to dive deeper on this topic, please head to writingtheother.com and check out their resources, classes, and on-demand webinars. Our next episode goes up on August 19th, when we'll be joined by author Mike Underwood to discuss martial traditions. No, not the traditions of Marshal Ryan Maresca. We're looking at the arts of war and the social constructs we build around soldiers and other fighters. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord channel linked on the About the Show page of our website if you'd like to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build till it hurts.